Well, this morning we begin a series that uh, runs through the season of Advent here in which uh, we're going to be looking at uh, the lectionary psalms, except for one week. We won't actually look at the psalm, we'll look at Mary's song, um, but we'll be looking at songs nonetheless in total uh, throughout this series. Now, one of the things that might happen is if you are someone who loves tradition and, um, and, and you love uh, the text of the season, uh, you might ha- start having Isaiah withdrawals. He's saying, where's, where's a good old Isaiah text? And I, I love Isaiah, and the church has loved Isaiah uh, through all the ages. Um, we'll get some Isaiah come Christmas Eve. Um, but we're going to be looking at these psalms because I think they speak a good word for us that speaks into Advent as well that oftentimes gets overlooked uh, in our own preparation. You'll notice in the journaling questions that the second question has you writing your own song based on Psalm 80 themes. And so uh, you can write the lyrics. If you know how to write music notation, you can certainly go that extra level. Uh, but write some lyrics. See what happens. See what you come up with in that, in that process. Church growth. And now read here attendance. But church growth is not only the aim of many a congregation. It also constitutes an entire industry that's dedicated to helping these same realize the goal of putting more attendees in the pews more eyes on the screen if you have a live stream, and maybe even more money in the plate, right? The big trifecta there. A simple web search, of course, nets a lengthy list of devoted organizations on this front. And while seeker-sensitive styles of worship framed and formed the basis for adding worshipers a generation ago, today you might find more emphasis on such things as digital marketing strategies. Even still... With all that in mind, there is one seemingly tried and true strategy for church growth that seems to have proven effective in the first century just as much as it has in the 21st century. And now, once you hear this secret that I'm going to share with you, don't be surprised when I hit the road as a church growth consultant and begin running seminars from this little nugget that I have deciphered from church history. Here it is. This is the seemingly tried and true strategy that has worked in every century. National tragedy and impending doom. Nothing gets them to church like those. You want to fill up the seats? Disrupt the status quo of our lives. What we try to organize is ordinary lives that travel predictable paths, or at least that's what our financial planners might hope. But as Mike Tyson reminds us, the great theologian, and boxer. Everyone has a plan until they get punched in the mouth. And when life punches us, we sometimes end up in church. We end up in church. In 2002, the Wall Street Journal reported that churches, synagogues, and spiritual centers saw a 25% increase in attendance in the weeks that followed the attack on 9-11. A 2019 Oxford University Press blog highlighted that, quote, research finds that people become more religious when hit by natural disasters, end quote. The article went on to note that, quote, other disasters such as wars and conflict may potentially have similar effects on religiosity as natural disasters, end quote. I don't imagine that many of us here are surprised by these findings. Religious coping is a thing. We've heard of that. Some of us might be using that right now. And our cultural lectionary acknowledges as much when we identify sudden, transformative, and life-altering experiences as come-to-Jesus moments. We admit as much. The ancients 
who are penning Psalm 80 at this point. The ones who are writing this are having a come to Yahweh moment. That's what they're having here. And as much as it's an appeal, at the same time, they're desiring that Yahweh would come to them in this moment as well. After all, their situation looks absolutely bleak. Scholars here associate this song with the last days of the northern kingdom of Israel. And whether the writer has fled the north and is or has viewed these events from afar as they write, or someone who's actually from the south and hoping that what is unfolding will not visit their own kingdom, we're not sure. But either way, the ancient writer and their audience are praying for deliverance amidst looming devastation. So that's the context in which this is being written. So it might just have something to say to you and me today when we find ourselves in distress. When our own song that we might be singing has turned sour and we become cornered by the troubles of life. Where does the ancient go when they sing and they pray amidst such distress? The ancient writer here in Psalm 80 appeals to the shepherd of Israel. We say in the first part of verse 1. Now, ordinarily, this designation would be to the king, the association being all the more reinforced in the famed King David, whose family business was in the fields before the prophet came to visit. But the psalmist here is looking beyond the earthly kings, as imperfect as they were, to the preeminent shepherd, the same shepherd that Joseph identifies in Genesis chapter 49, verse 24, the one that David acknowledges in Psalm 23, and that the prophet Ezekiel contrasts over against the false shepherds of his day in Ezekiel chapter 34. The psalmist has Yahweh, or God, in view here, and that much is made certain as the shepherd is also identified as being enthroned upon the cherubim. But as high and exalted an image all this might leave us with, the psalmist here enters boldly with four imperatives in verses 1 through 2. Give ear. Listen. Hear us. Shine forth. Like in the victory that a god, a deity, would have in its power to shine in blazing splendor. Stir up. Wake up. Come on. Rouse up. And come. Actually show up. Show up to our defense. That might be a result of the dark times in which they are living, that they might come with such boldness, that amidst the cloud of war and the specter of defeat comes a certain kind of desperation that you can talk like this. And the psalmist's determination here might stem from a feeling that God seems altogether absent, which is a common human feeling in the midst of struggle. If only God would hear their cries, would be roused from his slumber, and take action on behalf of God's people. If only. Or it could stem from something else. It could stem from the sense of who God is and how God has revealed God's self previously, that God indeed is the shepherd of Israel, the one who has charge over caring for this lot, that God indeed is the one who leads this flock and has done so even in far earlier times through those wilderness wanderings. Or even that God is in fact enthroned on the cherubim. An image that was displayed with the Ark of the Covenant. 
as it sat in the Holy of Holies, topped with cherubim on whom God was said to rest, the very mercy seat, pointing to God's presence with God's people. So God is indeed who this people would turn to in time of distress. Because as Spurgeon recounts from an old Gaelic proverb, during distress, God comes. And when he comes, it is no more distressed. The ancients are holding to such a possibility amidst their own misery that God will show up. And when God shows up, what they anticipate will follow is captured in that refrain that's repeated in verses 3, in verse 7, and in verse 19 of Psalm 80. Restore us, O God. That's the prayer. Let your face shine that we may be saved. God has gone away. If there's to be restoration of the people, it must be by restoration of God's presence. That's what John Goldingay observes in the feeling of these ancients, what they must certainly thought at the time. You think Elvis has left the building? When your entire mindscape is that God is present with you as symbolized in temple worship, and then all you name it breaks loose, and you feel very alone and quite vulnerable that God has left the building reverberates far more than if the king of rock has left. That's quite the blast. That's quite the blast to receive. And Golden Gay will go on here to observe that this audience need instead to experience God's face shining, smiling, because that signifies both personal warmth and the deliverance and blessing that naturally issue from personal warmth. Such an experience, what the refrain outlines, can make all the difference even between life and death. This past week I read about Paige Hunter, a young woman from the UK who found herself at one point standing on a bridge contemplating jumping to her death. She had been a rape victim who suffered from PTSD and depression. And Hunter states in the article, I got to the point where I couldn't deal with it anymore, so I went to the bridge and debated if my life was worth living. But her story didn't end there. Two people passing by in a truck saw her and stopped, and they kept her from proceeding with her plans, all the while telling her that she was worth a lot more than what she was about to attempt and what she was going to do. Well, following that experience, Hunter decided to make it her mission to make sure others facing a similar dilemma hear positive messages themselves. So she began posting uplifting and encouraging notes on the bridge to be seen by would-be jumpers. One such note read, Even though things are difficult, your life matters. You're a shining light in a dark world, so just hold on. These notes of hope have become a permanent fixture on the bridge. The community now participating in that effort. At the time that this article ran, which was March of 2022, there were some 240 notes posted on the bridge. But the bigger number here is the number 28. Now don't go crazy, mathematicians, and say 28 is not bigger than 240. Well, it is when you realize that 28 is the number of people who credit those words for saving their lives, who saw them and didn't jump. Words matter. 
Words matter, particularly words that are backed with love and promise. And when one finds themselves fragile and seemingly dispossessed, the refrain of the psalm harkens back to an earlier promise of God's face shining on this people that is found in Numbers chapter 6. It's a blessing that Aaron and his sons are instructed to pronounce on the people of Israel, to say to them, and here in, in chapter 80 of the Psalms, it's used and read out to the people who are going through their own distress. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. In their hour of need, they appeal to God to save and restore. And within that song comes covenant promises of God's faithfulness, God's own words to the people of Israel. And that's quite something. As John Calvin observes, God's object was to encourage them when bowed down under the load of their calamities, boldly to rise up, heavy though the load might be. And in case you imagined this group, or if you imagined this going to a group that had it all together, if you thought these folks received this kind of blessing because they are perfect moral examples, they're upstanding people, they're pious, unbelievably pious, they're not. This lot painted themselves into this corner. That much they do not refute. This text doesn't seek to refute that they're not getting what they deserve. But instead they ask, how long? How long? Perhaps now God's anger, verse 4, would subside. Perhaps their tears, in verse 5, could now be dried. Perhaps their humiliation, in verse 6, could now cease. And the replanted vine of verse 8, this vine that once had been taken from Egypt and planted, that once flourished, that it would do so again. I read one preacher who notes here, the extraordinary inclusion of the vine and God's face shining upon it. It's a kind of divine photosynthesis. If you think about it, God's light shines on this vine and causes it to grow. We need God's light to shine on us so that we might grow too, so that we might truly live and flourish. Without it, well, that's how you get to penning a psalm like Psalm 80. You end up writing that type of story in our own hearts and with our own voices. Lord, save us. Now, save us was certainly the ache in the heart of those earliest Jesus followers in that first century. But that ache quickly turned to joy when they discovered in this Jesus that God was in fact shining upon them. Just do a quick read of John chapter 1 and note all the light imagery that God's face indeed is shining upon them. That the shepherd of Israel to whom the psalmist prays and to whom we pray in our own day, this same shepherd of Israel not only heard them, but came to visit them. As we hear Jesus, who is the good shepherd, in John chapter 10. And that whatever sense they might have had of going it alone, if they thought they were on a journey or a travel where they were isolated and no one walked with them, there was no presence of God with them, that the once flourishing vine was now all but forgotten, that it had been erased, this Jesus, being the true vine, 
that we hear in John 15 invites them to be the branches, to join and be connected to that vine that once more flourishes. The vine is reestablished, and to the prayer, save us, which they too cried, and which we cry today, Jesus embodies exactly that. It's why his name's Jesus. Our God saves. Yahweh is our salvation. We moderns sing a similar tune to the ancients calling to be saved. Like those ancients, we find ourselves in undesirable predicaments of our own making. Runaway greed, unchecked lust, these put a burden on our hearts and minds, and they impoverish our relationships. Troubles assail us on all fronts. Worry fills our hearts. It crowds our minds. It clouds our vision. Add to these the consequences of the sins of past generations being visited on us today. And these join with our own sins that we'll hand down to our children. Devastation has hit our homes. It has dismantled our streets. And it pollutes our shared environment. Perhaps it's not only similar, but rather quite the same. When we say, God help us, that sounds an awful lot like, save us. Sounds like we're praying the same prayer. Well, perhaps we might also hear God's voice speaking to our generation in such a moment. And not only this moment, but each and every moment. Speaking in Jesus Christ through the power of the Holy Spirit and speaking words of promise and blessing. Reminding us to turn, but also turning to us and saying, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Friends, may we hear those words from the living God. And may heaven and nature sing. Amen. Friends, let us pray. Lord, we join our voices with the ancients in that same prayer, praying that you would save us and seeing in Jesus Christ that you have provided a means and the possibility for us to join that flourishing vine. And so now, Lord, we come before you and offer to you our very lives for you to tend and to grow us, for you not only to rescue us, but draw us into new vistas and new imaginations, places where we might live into that flourishing kingdom. And all the while, Lord, we thank you, and we trust you, and we love you when we pray. Come, Lord Jesus. Amen.